Well, thank you, Kevin. Um, I would like to warmly thank the LSE, both the Ideas and the Hellenic Observatory for the honoring invitation to be in this panel today. Uh, for every LSE graduate, the return to the LSE for an academic event is always one of the most important parts of our academic life. On the other hand, I confess it feels awkward to speak on this subject these days. I was studying at the LSE in 1990 when Greece was again on the verge of bankruptcy and was then bailed out by its partners. I now come here at the time of a new crisis to speak about one of the most spectacular Greek successes of contemporary history. This gives rise to some bitter thoughts which you will permit me to share with you at the end of my presentation. Let me start with some remarks regarding the dictatorship. The nature of the junta has been hotly, and as usually happens in Greece, incompletely debated. The junta, as Kevin said, was a humiliating experience for a country which aspired to become part of the West, and whose economy in the 1950s and 60s was growing at an annual rate of almost 8%. It was seen then as imposed by the Americans, as a natural evolution of the anti-communism of the post-Civil War Greek political system, and to a large extent as the inevitable result of the specific outcome of the Civil War of the 1940s. The dictatorship therefore caused huge mutations in Greek political culture and dramatically boosted a rather hollow pseudo-revolutionist culture, anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism. Recent research shows that the Hunda was a much more complicated affair. The international bibliography is full of new works, some by Efi Pedaliou, who is with us today, new works based on research in the American and the British archives, which show that the dictatorship was not, in the end, imposed by the United States. Its origins were primarily internal. It was a consequence of the internal collapse of the Greek political scene in the mid-1960s. The Hunda was not even imposed by the Greek army as a whole. It was a strange moment when the state was hijacked by a small group of extremist officers and representative of the army, mostly of its higher echelons. These officers were low-rank, essentially Nasserist and anti-Western. However, they managed to take advantage of the anti-communist psychosis of the post-Civil War political system and to use the communist threat as a pretext to impose an outdated regime. In other words, recent historiography suggests that the roots of the junta can be found more in the interventionist tradition of the army of the interwar years. It was thus, the junta was thus a manifestation of the phenomenon which was described in uh, Greek bibliography as, quote, the crisis of Greek institutions, unquote, which started with a national rift between Venizelists and anti-Venizelists in 1915, produced enormous cleavages in the interwar period, and then was combined with the communist and the communist cleavage of the 1940s. Since 1915, Greece experienced a series of parallel cleavages, national rift and civil war. The country had managed to develop economically in the 1950s and 60s, but its politics and its institutions had not followed the pace of modernization of its economy, and social inertia was still extremely strong. This painful mismatch between its economic progress and its political and social inertia, as well as Greece's crashing inability to reform in the 1960s, opened the road for the humiliating dictatorship, which thus can be interpreted 
as a sign of the wider failures of the Greek political system, going back to the beginning of its crisis of institutions since the early 20th century. But on the 23rd of July 1974, the junta fell, and the former prime minister, Constantine Karamanlis, who was living in self-imposed exile in Paris, was called to assume the premiership. Karamanlis returned to Athens in the middle of the night on the French presidential aircraft, which Valéry Giscard d'Estaing readily made available for his trip. Then Karamanlis oversaw the transition to democracy, first heading a national unity government, and then as head of an elected government following elections in November 1974, in which his party, the New Democracy, received a very big share of the vote, 55%. Now, in my presentation, I'm anxious to discuss interpretations of the Greek transition, rather than torment, torment you with a detailed account of the events. Allow me simply to mention its main stages. The problem of the Greek transition was that the governments had to deal simultaneously with an internal and an external crisis. The Turkish invasion of Cyprus and the simultaneous Turkish claims on the Aegean seabed and airspace meant that there was an imminent danger of a Greek-Turkish war either in occupied Cyprus or in the unfortified islands of the eastern Aegean. At the same time, internally, the Prohunta officers continued to control crucial units of the Greek army, especially units stationed around Athens. From mid-August 1974 until February 1975, the ministers of defense and of public order, Evangelos Averov and Solon Gik, suppressed a series of attempted coups and of assassination attempts against Karamanlis, hence his constant changing of, of uh, uh, places to sleep. So the democratic governments had to steer a very careful course in this crossfire of challenges, both internal and external. <coughs> The transition was called by the international press the Greek miracle, exactly because despite these enormous challenges, it was done swiftly, bloodlessly, and effectively. But the essence of the transition and Karamanlis' aim was not simply and narrowly to solve the problems created by the Hunda in 1967 to 1974. It was the effort to solve in one stroke all the problems of the painful institutional crisis of the Greek 20th century. Without such a comprehensive approach, Karamanlis believed, it would be impossible to set up an established democracy. The repeal of Hunda legislation and the return to democratic government in summer 1974 were crowned by the legalization of the Communist Party in September. The Communist Party had been banned in 1947 during the Civil War. In November, free elections were held. In early December, a referendum abolished the monarchy, thus solving the infamous regime question which had been raging since the interwar years. So it is clear that Karamanlis' aim was to settle all pending questions of the past decades, national rift and civil war. In early June 1975, the transition was completed by the coming into force of the new constitution. This constitution managed to solve the problems of the institutional crisis which Greece was facing, to create at last the institutional framework of the modern intervention state to protect effectively human and social rights. But the most important aspect of the transition strategy can be traced in the fact that the constitution came into force on the 11th of June, and the Greek application to join the EEC 
as a full member was formally submitted on the morning of the following day. The Karamanlis government saw the, the internal transition as integrally connected with the country's European options. These were the two sides of the same coin. One could not be done without the other. Uh, I will not trouble you much with this aspect of the transition strategy. It is best explained in an LSE PhD by Irini Karamuzi. The book is now forthcoming and allow me to say, permits us, I think, to be proud of the fact that our students become better scholars than us. <laughs> At any rate, this swift, bloodless, and effective transition surprised the world, especially the West of the mid-1970s, which was torn by the oil shocks, self-doubt, and loss of confidence. But what was the meaning of all this? The truth is that this Greek miracle was personified in Karamanlis. He dominated the political process to the extent that Giscard later stated that in 1979 it was Karamanlis, not Greece, who joined the EEC. Helmut Schmidt remarked that it was impossible to deny the entry to the EEC of a country led by such a man. So this personification of the Greek transition is not merely the result of the usual Greek provincialism, it is also an international view. It is to some extent even accurate. Let us simply wonder what would have happened if Giscard's plane had crashed on that crucial night of the 23rd of July 1974 and Karamanlis had been removed from the scene. Still, it's not the whole story. I fear that the picture of one man, Karamanlis, single-handedly leading this process has created misunderstandings, even historiographical distortions. In our days, a new bibliography offers, I think, a fuller picture. It focuses on Karamanlis' role as a leader of a team rather than as a lonely titan. In other words, the phenomenon which we describe with the word Karamanlis is not one man. It is a group of people. Uh, there is an inner circle of the Karamanlis governments, members of the same generation, characterized by common and clear ideological priorities, such as the acceptance of the social market, the need to follow in Greece the fundamental methodologies of, uh, methodologies of the interventionist state, the need to overcome at last the static cleavages of the national rift. Half the people of the Karamanlis team came from former anti-Venizelism, Karamanlis himself, half from former Venizelism. This team included persons like Konstantinos Tsatsos, Panagiotis Kanelopoulos, George Rales, Evangelos Averov, Xenophon Zolotas, Panagis Papaliguras, Ioannis Pasmazoglu, after 1974, Kostis Stefanopoulos, Konstantinos Mitsotakis, and others. Most of these people had been close to Karamelis from the very start, from 1955, and therefore they did not have the opportunity to lead themselves. Still, still it is telling that despite this temporal disadvantage that they faced, three became prime ministers, two presidents of the republic. Without these people, the phenomenon which we call Karamanlis could never have existed. As the U.S. Embassy commented on another Karamanlis government in 1962, quote, 19 Greeks will have differences whether they are cabinet ministers or, or Girl Scouts, unquote. But that was the real function of Karamanlis' leadership. He could command the support and the respect of this high-quality team. He was the catalyst who allowed them to act in the sui generis conditions of post-war Greece. Unfortunately, focusing one-sidedly on his role, we have tended to commit the huge mistake of, of missing this more comprehensive picture of a larger group of people characterized by common political methodology and by common ideological priorities, and that 
thus we have largely missed the point. This is why in a recent book I have disputed the widely accepted in Greece, widely accepted view of Karamanlis as an ethnarch, the leader of the nation. An ethnarch is a person who leads a nation which has not yet developed its institutional organization. Both Karamanlis and the Lefteris Venizelos before him aimed at exactly the opposite. They aimed at the creation of a state and of a political system able to function based on procedure, not through the magical touch of a mythical leader. But despite their impressive accomplishments, both Venizelos and Karamanlis failed in that pivotal effort. They remained the positive exceptions in a political system which so easily gives in to parochialism and to populism. In his annual review for 1977, the British ambassador, the able Sir Brooks Richards, noted that for this reason exactly, Karamanlis remained in the Greek political system, quote, a structure anomaly. And this, in my view, was the long-term weakness of the transition to democracy. Uh, dear friends, allow me concluding to try to be a little revisionist. The transition to democracy in the mid-1970s confirms, I fear, a very disturbing Greek canon. Perhaps our finest hour is the hour of ultimate danger. Then we appear magnificent, able to overcome our weaknesses and to prove that we can deal with the real world in its worst manifestations. In 1974, the Greeks faced the simultaneous dangers of a civil war and an external war and managed to make the swiftest, bloodless, and effective transition to democracy, but then they failed to make the necessary follow-up to this accomplishment. And the people of the Karamanlis team, despite their immediate spectacular victories, failed, and they knew that they had failed, to ensure the most important precondition of success, long-term continuity. Karamanlis himself repeatedly stressed this major fault of the Greek political system, the inability to mount a long-term effort. And I'm fully convinced that the most important root of our present predicaments can be found exactly in this fundamental weakness of ours. Now, speaking about reflections, allow me to say that, ironically, this is something that many of us experience even today. Dear friends, during the last four years of crisis in Greece, I have seen people of the right, the center, and the left rallying together to protect not their own version of political ideology, but a way of life. To protect Hellenism's fundamental investment since the 18th century, namely the effort to become part of the developed world. I have seen these people from the right, the center, and the left fighting together against their own former comrades who have given in to panic and to irrationality. I have seen them fighting not merely shoulder to shoulder, but literally back to back, surrounded and besieged. It is, in a very bitter manner, our own finest hour. But as had happened in 1912 during the Balkan Wars, in 1940 when the country faced the fascist onslaught, in 1974 when it had to set up an international example of democratic transition, as it happened in all these cases, the true test of our success will not be just whether we will be able to survive in the Western world. The true test will, will be whether we will manage at last 
to accomplish what the people of the Venezuelans and the Karamanlis teams tried but failed to accomplish, continuity of our effort, which is the fundamental precondition to attain the major aim of our national narrative, namely to create a state and a country which will be truly a full member of the democratic developed West. When and if we manage to do this, we will have finally grown above the need to have these big leaders like Venezuelos and Karamanlis, whom we then wrongly deify, thus inflicting new blows on our historical and political culture. If we do this, we will have a state able to function without the repressive embrace of the titanic leaders, which is by itself a sign of our own spiritual underdevelopment. And ironically, it is only then that these titanic leaders will have finally succeeded in their efforts because this is what they strove to do. I am convinced that this is the true task of Greek society, although I, how it will be done, I'm not in a position to say. I think that I do know, however, that the social conditions of Greece in our days have grown beyond the need for sudden short bursts of exceptional effectiveness, which were the eras of Karamanlis and of Venizelos. These are no longer enough. The country now requires sustained and long-term, calm and enlightened effort, a full system based on the moderation and the accumulated knowledge of a developed society. Even assuming that we overcome our present crisis, if we do not manage to accomplish that, I am afraid that in a few years we will again find ourselves, perhaps once more here at the LSE, discussing a new Greek crisis. But this new end cannot be accomplished from outside. It must be done by us from within. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, perhaps I can just uh, abuse my position as chair and ask a, a quick follow-up, and then we come to the external uh, dimension. Much of your conclusion was on Karaman Lees as an individual setting up a system which would uh, survive him, uh, something which would be institutionally stronger, more robust, and would be a break, therefore, with the past. What strikes me is that uh, you're, of course, right not to deify Karaman Lees, but what strikes me is the way in which uh, he as an individual ran his government. Uh, indisputably, he was primus solus. Indisputably, he was a prime minister uh, who gave very little attention to the full cabinet. Indeed, if the cabinet met, he would have a television address, rather like in England, we have the Queen making the Queen's speech every autumn. So if this was an individual who was seeking to establish a new type of government, more strongly institutionalised, something which would in some respects be crudely depersonalised, others would be able to sustain this after him, that didn't seem to be necessarily the most logical way to run uh, the government. Indisputably, there was one person at the top, and the way in which the government on the inside was run was very much coming to the one individual, not to a cabinet, not to cabinet committees, not, none of the procedures we normally associate with cabinet government in Western Europe were originated by Caroline Lisa at this period. May I? Please, just, just briefly, if you may. Yes, yes, uh, but I think... <laughs> 
Um, the position of Karamanlis and his government was indeed unique, I said that, but uh, I, I will not agree that uh, uh, it was all, all, all that the decisions were all made by himself. Uh, cabinet committees were existent. Yes, the full cabinet rarely met. Uh, and there's also a series of very careful, I mean, this, there is a pattern in Karamanlis's uh, uh, political methodology regarding his government. I don't know if this is fully the uh, British system. Obviously, it's not. I mean, Greece is not Britain anyway. But uh, the, in order to make a, a big decision, or even a smaller decision, there's a pattern in Karamanlis's activity, even before the dictatorship and after. Um, a series of very important meetings with experts and uh, cabinet ministers, uh, a period of very careful study, uh, and then another series of meetings with cabinet ministers and experts, and then the making of a decision. After the making of a decision, Karamanlis would not tolerate dissent. Before the making of the decision, he would discuss everything. After the making of the decision, now the, the the road to the making of the decision, on the road to the making of the decision, the role of the ministers responsible and of the experts are crucial. It was not Karamelis's job to, to uh, make all the minor adjustments uh, uh, in a government program. And after that, Karamanlis, about a year later, would hold uh, another meeting to review the course of implementation and so on. It would go like that. Uh, um, it, uh, there is this uh, very nice, a very good article uh, uh, by Takis Papas regarding his methodology. Uh, it's not a cabinet uh, system in the British manner, uh, and I'm not saying that it could be uh, I, I, I do not think that Karamanlis thought that it could, should be followed by the next prime ministers after him. But it's not just the way that the government works. When I'm talking about continuity, Kevin. I'm talking about a more general picture, uh, 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 how society works, how the whole state works. Uh, well, I'm talking about mentalities. Uh, I think that in many respects, Karamanlis, I don't know if he was primus solus, I, I, I understand Karamanlis as the leader of a team. It was Venizelos who was the real titan. Venizelos was much more dominating uh, uh, over his ministers. But it's another period. I mean, we, we, we can hardly compare the 1930s and the 1950s or 70s. Okay. Yeah. We don't have time to uh, pursue a particular interest. Richard. <laughs> well, it's a pity that Constantine Tukalas can't be here. That this evening because he was, as I understand, going to give us a sort of global picture of the uh, update here, the seven-year dictatorship, uh, looking at circumstances before, during and after. And uh, my brief was to say something about uh, the um, anti-colonel uh, campaign in Britain during this, uh, this time. Well, this discussion is taking place on the 40th anniversary of the Metropolitefsi, the restoration of democracy in 1974. In three years, it will be the 50th anniversary of the coup itself in 1967. And I, 
may briefly mention that in 1965-1966, my wife was the shore librarian here at LSE. I don't know whether if there's still a shore librarian, but um, uh, she had the job of sort of organizing concerts, lectures on cultural matters, anything but economics, more or less. And, and the Shaw Library at that time had a number of newspapers, including two or three Greek newspapers which would arrive daily. And during the Juliana, the July events of 1965, the resignation of Georgios Papandreou at the best of the young King Constantine. This gave rise to a great political crisis. And every day at about uh, noon, because the Greek papers arrived about 11, 11.30, Greek students would flood into the uh, Shaw Library to catch the latest news from Greece. This is, of course... 50 years, well, 40 years or so before the internet, and it was their only means of of following what was going on there. Uh, And after a few minutes, a very animated discussion would uh, uh, develop, and it was my wife's task to try to preserve quiet in the Shaw Library (laughs) (laughs) and to persuade the Greeks to carry on their political discussions in the corridor. She wasn't always uh, successful in, in that. But that was my, through her, the first introduction I had to Greek uh, politics. And we spent the academic year, 1966-7, in Greece, and of course lived through the Praxicopera, through the coup. And it was this experience that led me to develop uh, an interest in contemporary Greek politics. Hitherto, I had been carrying out research as a graduate student on topics such as the study of Karamelidika, that is, texts uh, written in uh, Turkish but uh, printed in Greek characters, of which there's quite a substantial literature which interested me. But, but that was a subject about as far removed from current, current politics as you can imagine. And so I did develop rather rapidly this interest in Greek uh, uh, politics. Uh, Evan, this is uh, rightly said, I think, that the, the junta was not imposed by the Americans. At that time, there was still a belief fairly widespread in Greece, particularly among older Greeks, that everything that happened in Greece was controlled not by the Americans, but by the intelligence service. By, well, it's, by, it, they still believe it. They still believe it after 50 years. And the, the, uh, the, the all-powerful intelligence service, uh, you know, which had his finger in every, every pie, um, uh, I think I, there's some evidence that this was not the case because on that day we were living in the British School, the British School of Archaeology there, and in the afternoon of the 21st of April 1967, four diplomats from the British Embassy came to play tennis on the tennis court which divided the British from the American schools now. This might have been double bluff, you know, to put us off. You know, any thought that the British were manipulating the the, the, the coup, but I think it really was. Uh, 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 you know, there's 
no evidence whatsoever that the, the British were caught by, by surprise. It, it's not that they might not have wanted to in, intervene, but they didn't on this occasion. A few years later, they, it, it was clear that uh, the, the British were prepared to intervene in, in Italy and uh, prevent a communist uh, uh, takeover of power there. But when we did return to, to Greece, and after 1967, uh, the summer of that year, we spent the academic year 1966-67, we were uh, involved in the campaign against the uh, junta. If you're interested in this aspect of the heptahetia, I would commend Maria Caravia's to Imerario to Londino, Simiosis Apotinepohietis Dictatorias, unfortunately published only in, in Greek in 2007. Well, I knew Maria well. She had, I, I think, before the coup, worked as a journalist for Cathy Merini, and her book, contains a great deal of valuable material about anti-dictatorship activities in London during the uh, period of the seven-year dictatorship. But her focus is very largely on the conservative, the parliamentary right, as you uh, term them, opposition to the junta. I mean, people like Eleni Vlaku, the owner of Kathamoni, who closed down her uh, newspaper, a right-wing newspaper for the whole period of the uh, junta, Takis Lambrius, another conservative uh, uh, journalist who was very close to uh, uh, Cameron Lees uh, himself. And if you read Maria's book, you, you get very little uh, evidence of what was going on on the part of centrists and, and, and left-wingers, and uh, it's very nice to see Professor Sprouse here, who was a, a stalwart of the anti-dictatorship uh, 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 campaign, but he and other people very much involved uh, do not figure largely, in some cases not at all, in Muriel's uh, uh, book. Well, I hope that someday someone will undertake a study of anti-dictatorship activities in the UK, covering all the paratexes, all the political families, from the KKE on the left to the Conservative uh, parliamentary right. Because it, it was partly the cooperation of these anti-dictatorship forces across the political spectrum uh, with the exception of the ultra-conservative, more or less quasi-fascist right, that prepared the way for Cameron Lee's legalization of the KKE immediately, more or less immediately after the collapse of the uh, junta in the summer of 1974. I have myself more or less completed a memoir, part of which, a small part of which, will be devoted to these uh, uh, years. And there are some interesting paraskini, as the Greeks would say, things behind the scenes that you don't often hear about. Uh, there's one particular thing I'd like to mention, which was the famous appearance of Melina McCurry on the first anniversary of the Brexit conference over the coup in uh, 1968, when she uh, gave a great speech in, in Trafalgar Square before a very, very large uh, crowd. And 
the speech had a great effect in sort of mobilising public opinion against the colonels, not that it really needed mobilising. But Melina had been staying at the Grosvenor House Hotel, one of the most expensive in London on Park Lane, and alas, she had left without paying the bill. <laughs> um, and my good friend George Anopoulos, who had arranged for Melina to come to London, was rung up by the manager of Grosvenor House to say that unless the bill was paid, I think by six o'clock on a, a Monday evening, uh, um, he would leaked the fact to the press, and that would have been absolutely disastrous, of course, for publicity for the cause. And the bill, as I remember, was about £400. It doesn't sound too much these days, but uh, probably ten times as much uh, in real terms. And I suspect that this massive bill was caused by Melina telephoning around the world at a time when long-distance telephone calls were very expensive. And I'd like to pay tribute to Georgianopoulos, now dead some 20 years or so, who worked tirelessly to blacken the record of the colonels. He edited a magazine, The Greek Observer, uh, and Eleni Vlaco and Takis Lambrius both edited high-quality uh, journals. And uh, George Anopoulos and I edited Reason Under Military Rule, published in 1972, an influential book because most of the essays about the disastrous consequences of the junta's policies were written by Greeks living in Greece, and with only one exception, which was absolutely justified, written by Greeks under their own names. It was a very brave uh, thing for them to do. And Lord Sainsbury brought out large numbers of copies of this book and distributed them to all public libraries and various other uh, 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 institutions. And it's a book that is not difficult, uh, as some of you will have found out, to find in second-hand bookshops because so many copies were handed out. And Yonopoulos, uh, uh, when we wrote that book uh, in 1972, well, we edited that book, as I say, uh, was at that stage very close to Andreas Papandreou. And it was through this connection uh, uh, with Andreas that... Uh, uh, a friend of Andreas Papandreou, a prominent member of the Norwegian Labour Party, Arne Holt became a contributor, although his uh, uh, chapter was not very good and we had to rewrite the whole thing. Uh, but that was in 1972. In 1983, Treholt was revealed to be a KGB agent and was imprisoned for some time in Norway and sometimes, you know, rather uh, imagine myself being imprisoned in Norway because it was rather agreeable existence. He had three rooms there. <laughs> <laughs> a little gym, a bathroom, and a sort of living room. In fact, was it better than your uh, accommodation in London at the time? Well, more or less, yes, it, it, it was. <laughs> and... Uh, um, uh, but it, it fortunately did uh, transpire that he was not working for the KGP at the time he contributed to our book. That happened uh, uh, two or three years uh, uh, later. Uh, but 
after the Metropolitan, you're not going to spell out with Papandreou, Andreas Papandreou. I've never really understood why. And he aligned himself with Konstantinos Mitsotakis, who had sort of defected, if you like, from the uh, center paratexas to the, to the right. Uh, and, and I think that's why one reason why George Yiannopoulos's uh, contribution has never really been uh, recognized. But the efficacy of the campaign can, uh, was illustrated by a letter that appeared in the Daily Telegraph in summer of 1968 by Alistair Horne, a well-known military historian, I think he's still alive, who wrote that... Um, He'd been impressed by Papadopoulos's word as a Greek, as a soldier, and as an officer, and complained that it was virtually impossible to get anything published uh, in the British press that was not actually defamatory of the colonels. And he, he was more or less right. It, 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 it was quite an extraordinary upsurge of sympathy and uh, um, concern about what was going on in Greece. And it's a paradoxical fact that the probably the most influential supporter of the junta in Britain was a Labour MP, Francis Noel Baker, while probably the most influential critic of the regime was C.M. Woodhouse, Monty Woodhouse, a Conservative MP. That's turning the world upside down, really. Uh, Woodhouse, uh, uh, whom I got to know at that time, uh, was prepared to appear as a character witness uh, for Mitsos Patsali, a member of the Central Committee of the KKE, then an illegal organization, of course, but in the event he was not called upon. But Patsali was uh, someone Woodhouse had met during the wartime, uh, and, and Woodhouse, a very decent, honorable man, was prepared to stand by him. I don't think Noel Baker would have done anything of that kind. Well, both Noel Baker and Woodhouse had... Uh, close connections with Greece. Noel Baker owned one of the few, almost the only large estate in Greece, apart from the royal estate. And Woodhouse, during the German occupation, had been the second commander-in-chief of the British mission to the Greek resistance. Both during the Second World War, members of SOE, the Special Operations Executive, whose task was to liaise with resistance movements, uh, uh, fighting the Nazis and Italians and Japanese uh, worldwide. But Noel Baker, curiously at that time, during the war, was one of the very few people in SOE that had uh, sympathy for the aims of AM, alas, the communist uh, resistance. And I, I once asked uh, Woodhouse whether he could explain the apparent paradox uh, that Noel Baker sympathized with the last in, in the 1940s, but championed the junta in the 1960s and 70s. And Woodhouse immediately replied that the answer was quite simple. Noel Baker's attitude in both cases was determined by his anxiety to defend his property interest, and he wanted to be on what he thought was the winning side. In the 1940s, that was alas. In the 1960s and 70s, it was the, the, the colonels. 
I myself was involved with one of the great successes of the anti-colonel's movement in Britain, namely the sabotaging of the uh, effort by the junta to improve its image by hiring at great considerable expense a public relations firm to uh, 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 spruce up their image. And this public relations firm began sending groups of MPs, cross-party groups of MPs, almost always accompanied by the, their wives, needless to say, uh, on fact, so-called fact-finding uh, visits to Greece. And the very first group that he sent in the summer of 1968 uh, um, uh, was a great triumph for the um, public relations man, in particular Morris uh, Fraser, because they, again, like uh, Alistair Horne, were prepared to accept the assurances of Papadopoulos uh, as a soldier and an officer, the phrase again, uh, that he really... He, he was intending to move towards a restoration of democracy, and also they said they could find no evidence of the routine torture of uh, opponents of the regime in Greece. And this was non nonsense, of course. And at the time of the referendum, entirely a fraudulent referendum in the autumn of 1968, uh, uh, on whether to adopt a new and highly authoritarian constitution, no fewer than 13 British MPs arrived in Greece to so-called observe the referendum, almost all of them under the auspices of the public relations man. And uh, basically it was a lavish free freebie for these individuals. But and this is where I was involved. Uh, one day, Eleni Vlaku gave me a document in Greek to translate for her to appear in the Hellenic Review. Uh, and um, she didn't seem to attribute, think it was a very significant document. But as I sat in uh, on the top, I remember quite vividly sitting on the top of a bus going back from her office, Limeri, as the Greeks would say, uh, of. Uh, uh, Oxford Street, back to the British Museum Library where I practically lived at the time, I almost fell off my seat in excitement because it contained uh, evidence that at one remove uh, uh, the Hunter the, the had a British Labour MP more or less indirectly in their pay. I mean, he, he was paid by the public relations agency, but ultimately the public relations agency was get, getting uh, money from the, uh, the junta. Uh, this was an extraordinary uh, document. And I remember dashing into the British uh, Museum, uh, telephoning Elena Vlaco, saying, you know, you can't just wait for your magazine to appear, in, you know, it's only published uh, rather erratically, you know, we must get some publicity for this uh, document, and I asked whether I could take it to the Sunday Times, which I did, and thereafter a huge controversy developed, um, the public relations uh, a man unwisely issued an injunction to prevent the publication of the document, which was a great mistake because everyone suspected the worst and uh, one thing led to another. And uh, uh, the 
public relations contract was uh, cancelled by the colonels, and the junta never again sought to hire a professional public relations consultant to defend their interests. Well, in the annual review for 1973, the, um, Sir Robin Hooper, the, the uh, British ambassadors at the time, uh, writing to the Foreign Secretary, uh, Sir Alec uh, uh, Douglas Hume, uh, uh, writing in his annual review. This is an exact quote from that annual uh, review for 1973. He wrote, the anti-regime lobbies, in which I include the Greek service of the BBC, which appears to be pursuing on government money a policy which bears little resemblance to the one which you, sir, that's Douglas Hume, of course, pay me to carry out were hard at work. Well, this indicates the kind of mindset of at least that particular ambassador, Hooper, who saw his task as developing uh, what the Foreign Office called a good working relationship with the junta. Uh, they would might from time to time make uh, uh, the odd comment about uh, uh, you know, the need for restoration of democracy, but really all they were really interested in is retaining this, uh, 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 this worship, uh, this um, uh, good working relationship. Well, few dictatorships in the post-war period, I think, have, in Britain at least, been the subject of such persistent, informed uh, uh, criticism and hostility as the military regime that uh, misruled Greece between 1967 and 1974. And there was a very well-organized campaign in Britain uh, and I emphasize, emphasize this again, covering the whole spectrum from the parliamentary right to the communist left that um, uh, kept up the, this insistent pressure. I mean, it didn't contribute to any uh, a marked degree to the collapse of the junta in 1974. That obviously was the, the Cyprus uh, um, a crisis that, that led to the implosion of the, of, of the regime, but at least it kept the regime in, uh, uh, in the sight of, of, of the British people. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.